This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. And away we go. Welcome to the broadcast for Sunday, October the 9th, 2011, on what would have been John Lennon's 71st birthday. I say that just simply because I'm a, a huge fan, so it's important uh, for me to mark that uh, anniversary. Uh, in any event, uh, coming up at midnight, the second hour of our program, the return of an old friend of the program, our paranormal investigator, Rosemary Ellen Guiley. Now, she's down in Florida tonight in Sarasota uh, on an investigation, uh, but she's going to be here to talk about something much more uh, closer to home, and that is a possessed possession that uh, she stumbled across right here in our very own backyard in Toronto. Toronto, Canada. Uh, it is a Masonic apron. That's right, a Masonic apron. Um, the owners of which uh, claim this particular article of um, a clothing is possessed. So, can't wait till we get to that one. Uh, let me also just uh, give you a programming note. Now, those of you tuning in. Uh, expecting to hear an interview with Judith Very Baker. A little bit of uh, a mix-up in the promo uh, that uh, has been airing. Uh, that actually is scheduled for next week. Next Sunday, that would be July the 16th, an interview with uh, Lee Harvey Oswald's uh, girlfriend, Judith Very Baker, and that promises to be an exciting interview. She's going to drop some bombshells as we approach what would have been Lee Harvey Oswald's 72nd birthday. Uh, in the grocery store, of course, it is uh, a harvest time, and uh, the mighty Aphrodite is, she, lo- she insists, actually, in buying local. And when she goes into the, uh, the grocery stores in, in and around uh, Markham, here where we reside, if she doesn't find local products when there should be local products. How should I say this? She raises a stink. 
she will ask for the general manager. She will say, why are there no Ontario potatoes here? Why uh, is this uh, uh, parsley not fresh, et cetera, et cetera. And she will get into it. She'll ask for the manager. <laughs> she, <laughs> she will not pull any punches. And um, in one uh, recent episode, the, um, the, the produce manager spoke to her, and he sympathized. And he said, what can I tell you? Here in Markham, we don't grow food. We only grow houses. Uh, and those of you who know um, uh, how quickly York region, north of uh, the city of Toronto, is, is growing by leaps and bounds, uh, can attest to that. Driving along uh, 16th Avenue, uh, yesterday there was a dairy farm there. Today they've got the, uh, the stakes with the little orange flags in the ground uh, with the sign, you know, the big white sign saying that this property is being rezoned for multiple dwellings, and that is basically uh, a sign of the times, really, uh, sad as that is the case. So uh, I thought it was high time that I um, uh, get back onto this program, a, uh, a very, very learned individual when it comes to uh, talking about food. He has more than 35 years of experience as a journalist and editor specializing in science, environment, and agricultural reporting. He is a three-time winner of the Canadian Science Writers Association Award and received a National Magazine Award for his agricultural reporting. Thomas Pollock holds a master's degree in farm journalism and is the author of 10 books, including the best-selling The End of Food and, uh, most recently, The War in the Country. And uh, delighted to have Thomas Pollock uh, back on the radio here this time on The Conspiracy Show. Thomas, how are you? Pretty good, Richard. It's been a while since we talked. It has been uh, too long. And first of all, uh, uh, the war in the country, I guess that's been out a uh, little more than a year, has it? Yeah. How's that book been received? Uh, it's been received quite well, um, except by the people that attacks and criticize it. Uh, no doubt. I should uh, mention the subtitle. Uh, the War in the Country, How the Fight to Save Rural Life Will Shape Our Future. And I, uh, I began the, uh, the, the program talking about um, uh, my, my wife and the conversation she had in uh, the grocery store. And uh, what's going on here in Markham, of course, is, is um, I'm sure being repeated across the country as we continue to lose farms uh, to the developers. Let's, let's start there. I mean, what, what can be done? Uh, about that. I mean, we don't have a lot of, uh, it's, a, it's a big country, but we don't have a lot of arable land. Uh, but, it, you know, times are tough for everyone, particularly the farmer. How can you tell a farmer not to get top dollar and sell his property to a developer uh, that he, you know, that he should keep farming or, or keep farming until he can sell to another farmer? I mean, how do we resolve that problem, Thomas? Well, I don't think it's up to the farmer to resolve it. Um, I don't think there's much the farmers can do about it at this point. Uh, uh, just to give you an idea of what they face economically, um, the prices for beef in Canada not long ago were, uh, uh, this is the prices that uh, farmers receive for beef at farm gate as opposed to the price you pay for it in the supermarket. Uh, the price farmers were receiving was the same as it was in 1936 at the oh, height of the Great Depression. Uh, that's a pretty darn low price. Um, 
and farmers are just being squeezed right out of existence, uh, small farmers, that is, as opposed to big industrial farmers. But there's something worse than this cost-price squeeze going on. Uh, in fact, uh, I, I didn't write about it in, in uh, my most recent book because it's, it's come upon us so suddenly and it's such a recent development. Uh, in fact, uh, I, I'm finding, uh, <laughs> as I try to keep up with what's going on in the food industry, things are, are uh, happening and developing way faster than I can keep up with them uh, in my books. Uh, right now, there's a, 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 a been a rash of legislation in both Canada and the U.S., uh, which is threatening almost literally to wipe out uh, the organic food industry uh, and most uh, small family farms. In which bill are you referring to? Uh, a number of them. Um, there were two... Uh, passed in the U.S., um, and there was one major one passed in Canada. Um, the In the U.S., uh, there was a bill passed in the U.S. Senate, uh, Senate Bill 510, and a similar bill was passed in the House in the U.S., and then the people got together and, and, and you know, uh, wrote a third version combining both, and it's now become law in the United States. It's called the Food Safety Modernization Act. And in Canada, we had a very, very similar bill um, that's written in almost, uh, not identical, but very similar language. Uh, bill C-36, the Safety of Consumer Products Bill, which was also passed into law. And uh, these, uh, both of these bills have, have uh, uh, now gone on the books. They're already law. And what they mandate is um, so far-reaching and shocking uh, to people that a lot of people simply don't believe that this has even happened. If you tell them, they say, oh, come on, this can't be true. But it is. Ostensibly, they're telling us that they want to protect us from bad old organic food. Is that what they're saying? Well, any food that isn't made by certain companies. Um, It's interesting to see the genesis of these bills. in the United States, uh, both the Senate and the House bills, which later on became the model for the Canadian bill, were originally written uh, by a number of uh, think tanks in the states, uh, most prominent being one called Trust for America's Health. That's kind of a cute little uh, name. Mm-hmm. Um, and on the staff of uh, th- this particular one uh, is a fellow named Michael Taylor, who was at one point the vice president for public policy of Monsanto Company. Ah, uh, we knew that that name was going to rear its ugly head, didn't we? Yeah, and um, he he helped, uh, uh, among other people, he helped draft uh, the original forms of these bills, which later on went to the U.S. Congress and the U.S. Senate and into the Canadian Parliament and were passed into law. Um, in the U.S., uh, uh, what happened was the sponsors of the bill in, in, in the U.S. Senate, they have sponsors for bills. And there were 18 sponsors, and everybody thought, boy, this is quite, it must be a really good bill. It's got 18 sponsors. But of those 18 sponsors, 17 were on Monsanto's donor list uh, and re- had received substantial contributions for their campaign funds. They were from bought Monsanto. paid for. Pardon? They were bought and paid for. 
Well, I don't know if you can legally say that on <laughs> well, on air, names, but, but um, uh, it certainly looked like they were heavily influenced by uh, those contributions. And the one guy who wasn't uh, a heavy recipient of Monsanto help didn't need it because he wasn't running for election at the time. So uh, this these guys really like the um, uh, what's going on with. Uh, uh, the Codex, where well, that's Big part of the bill. sponsoring bills, trying to to uh, to run um, you know natural remedies uh, off the shelves. Yeah, well, the, the Codex Alimentarius, which was developed originally by the Food and Agriculture Organization that I used to work for years ago, um, is uh, uh, a sort of a food safety code, uh, as the word Codex indicates. Um, and if you lived in Botswana or some third-world country where standards, scientific standards weren't particularly high, uh, you would think the Codex Alimentarius was a great thing and an improvement. But if you live in Canada or the U.S., where we already had very high food safety regulations, to be forced to uh, submit to the Codex would be to drag our food standards down. But the Food Safety Modernization Act in the States and the Safety Consumer Products Act in Canada both require us to go by the Codex Alimentarius rather than our own food standards, uh, thus dragging down our standards. But that's, that's just the least of it. <laughs> when you look at the rest of these bills, it's just unbelievable. All right, Thomas, um, uh, hold on. We'll, we'll take a time out. We'll come back. Thomas Pollock, the author of uh, The End of Food. If you haven't uh, got a copy, I really urge you uh, to pick one up. It's, it's, um, it's an eye-opener. And, um, you know, we just went through a provincial election here, and I didn't hear anybody on any of the parties uh, talking about a food policy. I mean, if you say that to the canvassers when they come to your door... They roll their eyes. They like they they don't know what you're talking about. What is a food policy? I think it's high time that we uh, we demand uh, that our elected officials have one or pretend at least to have one. Uh, we'll come back and discuss further. And I really would like to get uh, the callers involved. If you have questions and comments uh, for Thomas, give us a call at four one six three six zero zero seven forty four one six three six zero zero seven forty and out of town toll free. Eight six six seven forty four seven forty. Question everything. This is the Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM seven forty. Afraid of the Dark. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To talk to Richard, call 416 360 0740 or toll free in Ontario at 1 866 740 4740. Coming up later in the show, Rosemary Ellen Guiley, our paranormal investigator, uh, will drop by via telephone from Sarasota, Florida. She's there on yet another paranormal field investigation, but she'll be talking about the case of the possessed Masonic apron. So can't wait uh, for that one. Right now, though, um, this really, uh, you know, we, when we talk about the key issues facing um, not only 
uh, Ontarians because we just went through a provincial election or, 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 or the nation. But this is a global issue. I mean, what is more fundamental than clean air, clean water, and food? We are talking about food, perhaps the end of food, or, or nutritious food, uh, with Thomas Pollock. Uh, his, his latest book is The War in the Country. Thomas, we were talking about this uh, bill before the Senate and its, its twin making its way through uh, Parliament here in Canada. Yeah, so, they've already made their way through. It's ah, been okay. passed into law. Okay, so, so what are the and, and I'll, I'll tell you what the situation in Canada is right now, thanks to this new law, which used to be called Bill C-36, but uh, it, it's uh, consumer protection. Uh, it, it's being brought in under the, uh, the guise of being a protection for your health. But what it actually does is it abolishes any procedural or, or uh, judicial safeguard for the people it's aimed at. Um, first of all, Bill C-36 abolishes the law of trespass so that uh, government inspectors can, without any search warrant and without any means or, or uh, 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 claim for suspecting you of any crime, they can walk onto your property uninvited and unannounced. When they get there, they don't need a warrant to search your home uh, and to seize any property they want, including your computer, all of your written records, uh, everything in your house. And if you are growing any kind of food from a small flock of chickens to a, a bunch of tomatoes in your backyard, they can seize those. They can also arrest you and charge you with what they call a food crime. And what a food crime is has yet to be defined. <laughs> um, and all of this will be done without any judicial review. In other words, once they do this, you can't go to court and say, look, they had no right to do this. They didn't have a court order. They didn't have a warrant. The law says they don't need a warrant. They don't need a court order and you have no appeal. They can arbitrarily accuse you of what they loosely call a food crime, confiscate everything on your property uh, uh, connected with, your, with food, and uh, fine you or even throw you in jail. But Thomas, that doesn't make sense. If I had a meth lab in my basement, I'd be... You'd have more rights than a, than a home gardener or a family farmer. What are they going to arrest before growing uh, um, uh, blueberries without pesticides? Well, what they would arrest you for is a food crime. That's what it's called, a food crime. And that remains undefined. It isn't defined yet. Um, but when you consider who originally authored this legislation, uh, or at least the models for it, right. um, were a, a number of large multinational corporations which specialize in the production of gene-altered foods. Uh, and who are they aiming at? With this bill, they're aiming at any competitor who might be out there, like a small family farm or an organic grower or even a backyard gardener who, instead of buying their food through the industrial system from these large corporations, tries to produce it on their own. Any of these people, including you, if you, if you grow tomatoes in your backyard under this legislation, can be charged with a food crime. And your products would be legally defined as smuggled, as smuggling. Um, 
I mean, this is, I don't know how, 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 how else to describe it. This is corporate fascism. Well, of course. And, <laughs> and it's law. It's now on the books. The only thing is, almost no one bothered to report it. No one followed this story. Very few newspapers or television stations even were aware that it was happening. What because about most the, of them uh, don't cover the food industry. Did it go through a committee process? Oh, yeah. It went through the whole schmear, just like every other bill in Parliament. But nobody seemed to pick up on it. And uh, it just sailed right through. And then along with these bills in the states, creating what I would call a kind of a fascist um, uh, inspectorship, um, at the same time that those were being uh, forced through, uh, another set of bills were com- not bills, but um, uh, legal uh, fiats were being passed, which uh, legalized the sale or the release into the environment of a whole raft of genetically altered crops, uh, some of which um, it could be extremely dangerous for the environment and for human health. Uh, in the States, um, just uh, uh, this year, in January, um, the release of uh, several varieties of gene-altered corn, of beets, of soybeans, and most recently alfalfa, the commonest of all feed crops for livestock, uh, were approved. Uh, genetically uh, altered uh, varieties of these crops were approved in the United States. Uh, despite uh, a lawsuit brought by uh, the small family farmers of the United States who, who sued the government over it because they were afraid this would ruin them. Uh, now these crops are legal in the states, and they're already starting to show up not only in the states, but because the wind blows and the bees uh, carry pollen, they're starting to show up in Canada as well. Um, the, the, the problem with them is... Once they start and, and, and have a hold in an area, uh, for example, with alfalfa, uh, if a farmer buys the genetically modified alfalfa and plants it in, on his farm, um, it's not going to stay on his farm. It will contaminate everybody anywhere near him. Uh, within less than a month, every farm within five miles of that farm will have its alfalfa contaminated by this. What do we mean by contaminated? I mean, well, I guess what we need to do is define what, what is a genetically modified uh, plant, and, and why is it necessarily a bad thing? Uh, well, first of all, uh, they're carried by um, the wind. The seeds from these plants can be blown around on the wind and come out to neighbor's uh, uh, property that way. And also the pollen from plants, such as alfalfa, which is pollinated by bees, uh, the bees can carry the pollen on their little feet uh, onto neighboring properties and, and uh, uh, contaminate the alfalfa there. So there's no way to keep it on the property. Now, the reason why people don't want it to uh, contaminate their crops is, first of all, if you are growing organic food and you're certified as an organic farmer, you cannot grow gene-altered products. If gene-altered products are found on your farm, automatically immediately you lose your certification as an organic grower, and you're out of business. So what happens when someone plants these GE organisms on a farm is they threaten the businesses of all of the organic growers in their area. They can wipe them out overnight. 
uh, that's one of the biggest problems. Um, but uh, I, I think a bigger one than that, even, uh, is the threat to human health. Um, for example, um, three varieties of gene-altered corn, uh, uh, two of them produced by Monsanto Corporation and another for, uh, by a different company, uh, were found in tests in France uh, to have, and I'm quoting this from the report, uh, produced by the University of Cayenne in France. It says, it clearly underlines adverse impacts on the kidneys and liver, the dietary detoxifying organs, as well as different levels of damage to the heart, adrenal glands, spleen, and hemopoietic system. Now, that's three separate varieties of corn, all of which have now been approved for planting in the U.S. and Canada. Um, on top of that, um, Many of these varieties, these GMO varieties, the crops themselves produce insecticides so that they automatically protect themselves against the insect pests by producing insecticides, which unfortunately are lethal to insects we don't want to kill, such as honeybees and monarch butterflies. Oh, my. So these things are, are toxic not only to people but to uh, the environment. Ostensibly, what is the purpose? I mean, uh, the 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 uh, the plant that produces its own insecticide that that makes, I mean, that makes sense. Not yeah, doesn't make good sense. But so, what what other reasons are they genetically modifying plants to improve yield? Uh, well, to make it easier for them to control weeds, one thing. Uh, for example, uh, uh, Monsanto uh, has a whole uh, variety of products that are uh, genetically altered to be resistant to its own proprietary herbicide, Roundup. Mm. Uh, and these crops are called Roundup-ready crops because uh, you can plant them and then spray the hell out of the field with Roundup, which kills every other plant, but won't kill the crop. Um, so the, the reason why uh, the, these crops are being bred in that way is, is so that you can more easily uh, uh, keep your field free of weeds. And what happens to that Roundup when we ingest those, that, that crop? Well, that's the thing. It's, it's, it's uh, potentially uh, uh, very toxic to humans as well as to uh, a whole number of uh, plants that we don't want destroyed as well as to wild things. For example, uh, it's, it's extremely toxic to milkweed, which is the only source of food of the monarch butterfly. Um, it contains glyphosate, which is a very troublesome uh, a, a compound. Uh, but even worse, even worse than that, um, they're finding in some uh, 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 gene-altered crops new things that have never existed before. For example, um, the USDA in the United States recently improved, uh, approved a Monsanto variety of alfalfa, which was genetically altered. And uh, a group of scientists at Purdue University um, examined it and found a brand-new microscopic pathogen, which was found in high concentrations of Roundup-ready corn and soybeans that researchers believe could be causing infertility in livestock and diseases in crops that could threaten the entire domestic food supply. I'm quoting from Purdue University here. Uh, Dr. Don Huber, a plant pathologist and a professor emeritus from Purdue, was the one who did the studies, and they quoted him. Uh, in, in an article, it said, he said, 
for the past 40 years, I've been a scientist in the professional and military agencies that evaluate and prepare for natural and man-made biological threats, including germ warfare and disease outbreaks. Based on this experience, I believe the threat we are facing from this pathogen is unique and of a high-risk status. In layman's terms, it should be treated as an emergency. The pathogen it can't even be defined. They don't even know exactly what it is. It's about the size of a virus. It reproduces like a fungus. Uh, and maybe, actually, according to Professor Huber, the first microfungus of its kind ever discovered in existence. So these gene-altered crops not only are dangerous in themselves and for their own properties, but because of them and connected with them, new living things are being created that we've never seen ever in existence before. And some of them could be extremely dangerous. Thomas Pollock, the author of The End of Food and his latest, The War in the Country, How the Fight to Save the Rural, uh, rural Life Will Shape Our Future. We'll take a time out. When we come back, we'll get to some calls. Your questions and comments welcome, of course, at 416-360-0740, toll-free from Maine to Minnesota and from Thunder Bay south to the Carolinas, 866-744-740. Stay with us. You want the truth? You can handle the truth. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To get to the truth, call Richard now at 416-360-0740 or toll-free at 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Shaking the world and seeing what falls. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM740. Hope you're getting a chance to uh, check out Season 2 of The Conspiracy Show a television program which airs weeknights at 11 p.m. Eastern on Vision TV. If you're on Rogers, that's Channel 60. If you're not on Rogers, uh, check local listings. And a uh, brand new episode coming your way Monday night at 11, followed by an episode from Season 1 at 11.30. So uh, The Conspiracy Show on Vision TV for the full hour weeknights, 11 p.m. Eastern. Right now, Thomas Pollock stays with us. Thomas, the next season... Uh, I vowed to do an episode for the TV show on uh, gen- genetically modified food, and I would love to interview you for for that. I'd be happy to take part. What kind of uh, you, you mentioned? You know that the, the people that you target in the, in the latest book, uh, the war in the country, uh, you're ruffling some feathers, so to speak. But you've paid a price uh, for your outspokenness in this field, have you not? I'm thinking about uh, uh, at the academic level. Yes. Um, uh... I, I, although I can't prove it uh, legally in a court of law, um, and so I can't mention uh, the actual university, uh, but um, I was uh, uh, forced to leave my university after uh, the book The End of Food came out and became a bestseller, and uh, I had been on a, uh, a leave, a research leave, 
to do the research for the following book, for the war in the country. And right in the middle of it, uh, the university cut off my funding, my research funding, uh, tried to order me back to the campus, even though the research uh, uh, approval had been uh, for me to do the research off campus. Uh, and then uh, I launched a proceeding, uh, first of all, um, to, uh, because you, you have, there's only certain things you can fire a person for or, or relieve them of their job for. Uh, and the university uh, uh, had to pretend that I was sick, and therefore they could place me on unwanted medical leave. Uh, at the time, I was not sick and hadn't requested medical leave, but they just arbitrarily said, you're sick and you're on leave. And then after that, um, they said, well, not only that, um, you're retiring. And I said, I didn't want to retire. And they said, well, you're retiring, and they retired me. Um, and um, I found out later that um, uh, uh, from a lot of different people that one of the reasons might have been that uh, the university where I was teaching, uh, which remains unnamed, uh, is in a province in which agriculture is probably the major uh, industry. Um, and uh, heavy pressure had come uh, on the legislature, and then that heavy pressure had come on the university. Um, to and one one person told me in the background. He said, "I I can't say this publicly, but one one guy said, get rid of that bozo.' So they did. How big um, a how how big a, a a profile or a presence, I should say, does Monsanto have in Canada? Well, I Monsanto was one of the uh, two or three leading manufacturers of uh, genetically altered seed. Uh, and it's, it's, it, it, it has recently changed its business to focus almost entirely on agriculture. It had been a, a broad, uh, a broad-based uh, chemical corporation before, but now it's a corporation which uh, focuses almost exclusively on agriculture, on seed and on pesticides and herbicides. And it's one of three multinational corporations uh, which currently. Uh, almost totally dominate the seed market uh, worldwide, uh, and particularly the market for uh, gene-altered seeds. And I think some of the reasons why these companies, and not just Monsanto, but the other two companies as well, <clears throat> um, are so anxious to uh, push their own products on the market is they know it will contaminate uh, other people's crops. And once these uh, uh, genetically altered organisms have been released into the environment, contaminated everything in sight, you can't bring them back. So it becomes a fait accompli. And there's no point in trying to outlaw them or control them because once they're in the environment, they're not controllable anymore. Um, there was a, a bill in the Canadian Parliament uh, last year, Bill C-474, which was... Uh, uh, supported by both the NDP and the Liberals at one point or another, uh, but it was voted down by the Tories. And that bill was to delay the introduction of gene-altered alfalfa until its full uh, potential effects had been studied. Now, this is just common sense, eh? This is the same GE alfalfa that contains that weird, uh, non-existent, hitherto non-existent pathogen uh, that the scientists at Purdue talked about. Um, 
And what, what the, the moratorium bill said was, let's not introduce this alfalfa, which has this weird pathogen that nobody has ever uh, heard of before and that we know nothing about until we've had time to study it. And the Tories said, no, no, we want this out. Uh, uh, tell me about these genetically modified seeds that Monsanto's, Monsanto and others are producing that produce plants that actually sterilize their own seeds, which would force farmers then, instead of you know traditionally a farmer, will yeah, these back are what so they call seeds. terminator seeds. Yes, tell me about terminator seeds. And uh, uh, terminator seeds uh, will not breed uh, true, or even breed in some cases in, in another uh, uh, generation. And traditionally, what farmers have done is they, they plant a crop of wheat and they have a bumper crop and it's good wheat, they save a portion of that crop, a portion of those wheat seeds, to reseed their fields the next year. But with um, a terminator seeds, um, the seeds will not sprout the next year at all. They just die. Or if they do sprout, they won't sprout with the same characteristics that they had the year before. They don't breed true. Um, uh, th this is true of a lot of hybrid seeds, too. Uh, if you uh, save seed from a hybrid plant and plant it the next year, uh, chances are that the next year's crop will not have the same attributes as the previous year. Uh, and these terminator plants either don't have the same attributes or they just don't sprout. They just it, it, they have no life in them. And uh, the reason why uh, companies try to sell these terminator seeds is they want farmers to come back to them every year and buy their seed, be forced to buy their seed year after year, rather than uh, save some seed from their crop and plant it free of charge. So if your crop is contaminated um, by a, a plant that produces terminator seeds... You're screwed. First of all, uh, the inspectors from the company that, that uh, produces that seed if they find it on your property, and they have groups of inspectors traveling around in trucks looking for this in areas where they know they have people who have planted the seed. They're looking for places where it's spread. They come to that person's house, and they say, oh, you're growing our seed without our permission. Uh, that seed which is growing on your land is patented, and you have to pay us in order to produce your crop. And the farmer says, well, what are you talking about? I never planted your damn seed. It just blew here on the wind. And they say, nevertheless. It's on your property, and you must pay us. And not only that, because it's contaminated your own crop, we want all of your crop. We have the right to confiscate it. And uh, they've been doing this for years uh, all over the states. And in Canada, uh, there was a very famous case uh, where this was done with a, uh, genetically altered canola, uh, and a fellow named Percy Schmeiser from Saskatchewan uh, was victimized by this in a famous case that went all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada. And um, uh, so these, these companies, once they release their uh, gene-altered seed into the environment, know it's going to spread and contaminate neighboring farms. That will wipe out their competition and make sure that the neighbor cannot produce a crop um, that's, that's not their variety. And at the same time, uh, it gives them possession of their neighbor's crop. The neighbor has to pay them for, uh, for their, because they have a patent on their seed. And that, again, is corporate fascism. Uh, yeah. Let's go to Fred in Flint, Michigan. Fred, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Yes, good evening, gentlemen. 
it is corporate fascism. Uh, and this is also brief to the public trust. And before I get to that, I want to mention a thing called a mycoplasm. There's a brilliant Canadian scientist, maybe you've already interviewed him, Don Scott, uh, AIDS a Crime Beyond Belief. He documents the AIDS pathogen is actually a combination of, of a retrovirus and a mycoplasm, which has characteristics of a virus, but is actually different, and if I'm not mistaken, is associated with uh, Epstein-Barr chronic fatigue syndrome. Um, mm-hmm. But as far as uh, what's going on here, this is obviously breach of the public trust. The government is supposed to be protecting individuals' a right for life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. So this really has set me afire. <laughs> I, I have friends who are organic farmers here in Michigan. So what I'm going to propose to them is that in mass we stop funding this fascist uh, corporate government and uh, prosecute them. Maybe Larry Clayman Judicial Watch or the Center for Science and the Public Interest. we got to find a group that will work with us to prosecute for breach of the public trust. I, I heartily recommend class action suits. Uh, I think everybody in every state in the U.S. and every province in Canada where these varieties are being released should start bringing a whole rash of class action suits and bring them uh, with as many varieties of arguments as you can think of uh, and just uh, keep the government's head spinning with all the suits so that they can't do this. Thank you. And what about from GMO labeling? The governments have uh, prevented, or well, what shall I say, uh, eliminated uh, the uh, prerequisite GMO labeling. Yeah, and that was also done by the same people um, who wrote these bills that I mentioned tonight. Uh, the same uh, think tanks and uh, uh, foundations, uh, which are funded by the uh, multinational corporations that are doing this sort of thing, uh, also funded uh, those bills. Richard, I, I, I believe this is part of Agenda 21 and eugenics. What do you think? Uh, well, I'm just, you know, I'm looking into the future here, and I'm seeing a time in the, in the not-too-distant future when, first of all, all the, um, the farms will be factory farms. All yeah. the seeds will be produced by two, maybe three uh, companies. And it's, it's very... Um, a biblical. I mean, you know, it reminds me of certain passages in a certain book in the New Testament. It's you know? apocalyptic. Uh, so, this this may be one of the uh, the top two three issues facing mankind, and and we really have to to, to galvanize uh, public awareness about this. Fred, uh, thanks for the call from uh, from Michigan. Uh, Thomas, for those who would argue that with six and a half billion people on this planet. You know, we can no longer feed the world uh, with subsistence farmers, uh, or we can no longer feed the world without genetically modified food, because this is how we're getting, you know, greater efficiency and greater yields. How do you argue against that? Oh, well, I don't argue against it completely. Um, First of all, um, I do argue against the idea that industrial farming methods are the only way to go. Uh, and this has been proven a false 
statement uh, many, many, many times by a whole group of economists. Uh, w- one of them was a, f- a fellow from India named Amartya Sen, and he had a bunch of students who pursued um, uh, his arguments further and produced their own papers. And uh, they also did a number of studies of small, uh, independently owned farms, and they found that on average, um, small uh, family-owned organic operations were 25% more efficient than large factory farms. So that, that gives the lie to the idea that the factory farms can save us uh, from starvation. Um, and the idea that starvation is stalking us and, and, and we need more food is also a, uh, a straw man. Uh, what really, and, and uh, there have been a number of studies of this as well, uh, by economists as well as uh, sociologists, uh, what causes hunger in the world is not a lack of food. It's a lack of money for people to buy the food in the marketplace. Uh, for example, in the third world, uh, people uh, who had been supporting themselves for years in terms of food self-sufficiency, uh, when the industrial farming operations started up, they were encouraged to stop growing food and instead to grow only certain export crops, uh, such as sugarcane or coffee or sisal, um, and to cease growing corn and beans and food for themselves. Well, they did it because their governments told them to. And then what happens is uh, the large multinational corporations cut the price and the prices collapsed and all these people became bankrupt and they couldn't buy any food (laughs) and they didn't manufacture it themselves anymore because they had stopped growing their own food. Um, And and that's how uh, hunger in some cases was manufactured by this uh, man-made policy. Um, But uh, more importantly, if you're going to replace organically grown or conventionally grown food with gene-altered substances, which may destroy your kidneys or your liver or infect you with a pathogen that we don't even understand what it is yet, um, is this really saving the world? Excellent point, Thomas. uh, Hold on, we'll come back and continue on. Uh, in this uh, conversation. Thomas Pollack, the author of The End of Food and the War in the Country, back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. This is no place for the naive or the faint-hearted. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. A very ominous uh, music track bringing us back because this is a very ominous uh, subject. Thomas Pollack is with us, uh, the author of The End of Food and his latest, The War in the Country. You know, it's ironic, uh, Thomas, we had this uh, the, the codex that was uh, supposedly to, you know to protect us from uh you know natural remedies and supplements and and vitamins and yet uh i don't think anyone in the history of the world has ever been killed by uh 
I don't know, uh, uh, taking bee pollen or, uh, or, or a garlic capsule, yet prescription drugs kill about 750,000 Americans every year. Very good point. Uh, and yet, here we are going through the same business again, this time with, uh, with food, uh, and yet... If memory serves, most of these E. coli outbreaks, when it when it comes to uh, spinach or the listeria outbreaks, are come are coming from products that are grown on factory farms. Precisely, and they will be used as the excuse to start enforcing these new laws, which were put on the books this past year. Um, what happens is uh, factory farms, for, or or factory meat packers, or whatever. For example. Uh, uh, I don't think there's been a documented case in Canada of anyone dying from a uh, disease contracted from contaminated meat uh, that came from a small organic farm. Uh, We did have a case uh, not long ago where more than 22, 24 Canadians died from meat that was prepared at a large corporate packing plant in Toronto run by Maple Leaf. But that was a large corporate multinational owns that. Um, and every time you hear of an outbreak of uh, avian flu or swine flu or any of these things, they're invariably on a large factory farm using factory farm methods. They're almost never coming from a small uh, flock of uh, less than 500 birds. Uh, it, it just doesn't happen. And yet, whenever these things do happen, there's a big public outcry. The, uh, the ordinary uh, uh, reader or a person in the street um, feels insecure. Their food supply is threatened. They're afraid of getting sick. And then the government comes along and says, well, what we're going to do is we're going to protect you. And the way we're going to protect you is by getting rid of all these small operators who have all these unsanitary, small, poorly regulated farms. And we're going to save you from contamination by them. And they ignore the fact that these small farms haven't been the source of contamination. It's always been the factory farm. Let's go to Charlestown, West Virginia. And Daniel, welcome to The Conspiracy Show, Daniel. Good morning. Hey, good morning. And what I, uh, for my comment, I would like to preface it by saying what better form to pose this in than on The Conspiracy Show. Is it possible that this is another phase of class warfare by which with these currency collapses facing us around the world that the big multinationals want to get control of the food supply so that they can pay for the labor they receive in food rather than in currency excellent question i have no doubt at all um the large multinationals uh uh, a little bit less so in Canada because of our, our method of financing political campaigns and the fact that we have a parliamentary system rather than the presidential one. Uh, we're not as badly off as in the United States. But in the United States, the government is almost totally dominated by corporate money. <clears throat> and as an example, more point into uh, the this, this uh, uh, latest set of uh, food uh, safety bills in the States which were designed by the, the two or three largest uh, multinational food and seed companies, uh, are going to be enforced by the Food and Drug Administration and its deputy commissioner for foods, who will be in charge of enforcing these laws, 
is a man named Michael Taylor, former vice president for public policy of Monsanto Corporation, now a U.S. government uh, food czar who's going to enforce the very bill that Monsanto's people indirectly helped to write. So is this a conspiracy by corporations? I don't know. Uh, you know, what do you think? Well, it's certainly a conflict of interest. Uh, yeah. But I would say... Can I toss it, one more thing into the mix? Certainly, Daniel. Uh, I, uh, here on my small farm, I own the only complete, intact, and operable water-powered grist mill in, the whole, in our whole county, which is a uh, subdivision of the state or a province, as you all would call them. And in addition to all the regulations that the federal government wants to place upon the, uh, ground, the stone ground needles that this mill might produce, the local county, the local community, has all kinds of obstructions to put in the way. A 250-year-old structure, and they want to completely rebuild this stru- the, its, its integrity, even though it survived two wars, numerous hurricanes, and Lord knows what else. I'm not surprised. Um, I'm, I'm a little surprised that it's the locals going after it, but, but the, even they do. Uh, I don't know if you heard of a case that the, the kind of made at first it made me laugh and then it made me really angry. Uh, uh, there have been a whole rash of cases in the states lately where children with lemonade stands were arrested. Um, We've had that in this area. Pardon? We've had that in this area. Yeah, because they did, they weren't collecting state sales tax. <laughs> well, in 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 Oregon, they they didn't have a hundred and twenty dollar temporary restaurant license. And these were kids who maybe made $10 on their uh, lemonade stand. Oh, my And they Lord. had to get a $120 license before they could operate it. And thank, you for the, thanks for the call, Daniel. I have to move along. I'm sorry, but it's great to hear from uh, West Virginia. Um, let's check in quickly here. Uh, Shadyside, Maryland, and Mark, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Hello. Here I am down on the peninsula on the Chesapeake Bay, listening to you live right over the radio. Excellent. Good to hear from you, Mark. Thank you. Excellent program and an excellent signal. Terrific. Uh, you're right on target. We're having a problem down here in Maryland. You can't buy milk from the farmers, and the farmers can't sell you milk unless it's gone through the uh, processors. Uh, the raw milk is the, uh, the story. They've, they've protested on Capitol Hill. And Capitol Hill will not stand for us to just be able to buy raw milk anymore. You know, we, we had, uh, we had the, the case of Michael Schmidt up here, Thomas, uh, uh, and, I've, and I've been told here by someone from um, an, an emailer, uh, Brent, emailing me saying the courts overturned the decision that it was okay to drink raw milk. It's okay to drink it, but you just being if you're in possession of it, it's, it's illegal. <laughs> A little bit like marijuana. But yeah, uh, uh, yeah. the, the whole okay raw milk thing. As long as you don't get caught. Well, the whole raw milk thing is uh, is uh, again they're erecting a straw man. They're saying, "Oh, raw milk is dangerous because it's not pasteurized." But what they forget is pasteurization eliminates the possibility of getting tuberculosis. What if your herd is regularly inspected by inspectors who come to your farm? and certify that your herd does not have tuberculosis. None of them have bovine tuberculosis. So therefore, your milk cannot contain the tuberculosis problem. And so it doesn't need to be pasteurized. 
So saying that uh, you know, without pasteurization we, we, we risk uh, spreading t- tuberculosis is nonsense because the herds are inspected anyway. I'm All very right, grateful for the program. Thank you. Thank you call, uh, for calling in from uh, Maryland, Mark. Appreciate it. Uh, Thomas, uh, just a couple minutes remain. If you're the food czar here in Canada, what would be your food policy? What, what changes would you implement beginning immediately? Well, if I was the food czar, I'd probably be on the payroll of some big corporation and raking in money, uh, so I'd be worried more about buying my next yacht. Uh, <laughs> but uh, the you first thing I would payroll. do, uh, if I were food czar, is I would institute a policy of go slow and really, really study the question of every single uh, genetically altered variety or livestock uh, uh, breed before you introduce it. Uh, right now what we have is a kind of reckless pell-mell rush to make a fast buck by some large corporations, which figure if they get their GE crops or their, their uh, genetically altered livestock breeds out there fast, they'll clean up and make a lot of money on their patented organisms. But the, the, the possibility of what they're putting out there destroying whole industries or destroying human health is never considered. So what we need is somebody who's going to say, look, the uh, uh, genetic modification of organisms is a good tool. It's a good scientific tool that can be used for very valuable ends. And we, we may want to use this, but it's not a good tool if it's used recklessly and foolishly without adequate study beforehand. And you, the, the first thing I do is... Thomas- is pass that bill to put a moratorium on the introduction of GM alfalfa. Okay. Now, what would you do to address the issue that you really brought front and center in the end of food, and that is the rapidly declining nutritional value of of much of the the food that we buy, certainly the produce and so forth. How are you going to address that issue? I would make it, uh, first of all, uh, I I would improve chances to market organic food and food grown by small growers who almost invariably produce a food which is far healthier and far more nutritious than the factory variety. Uh, I've often said that what I would like to see is as many farmers markets in a city as there are Walmarts. Then I'd feel it was a level playing field. I'd also like to see the kind of subsidies in both the U.S. and Canada and the kind of favoritism in Canada shown by the marketing boards towards the large operators, also shown towards the small ones. It's the small operators, the independent family farms, and particularly the organic growers, that produce the good, nutritious food we need. Our government should be devoting themselves to supporting these people. Well, Thomas, I don't know if you've ever considered it, but we need someone like you in Parliament. (laughs) I was asked once to run for the Green Party, and I said no, because I'm a journalist. And uh, if I side with any particular party, uh, I'm seen as, uh, as the French call it, the parti pris, mm-hmm. uh, taken by that party. And I can't function as a journalist anymore. Well, perhaps you're, maybe you, you can get more done uh, with the pen than you can uh, by, by sitting up there in Ottawa. And in any event, uh, Thomas, uh, always a pleasure. Thank you. And um, I, I'm sincere. We're going to do a TV program on this, and um, we're going to... If you're ready and willing, we'll get you on camera to talk about these things. I look forward to it, Richard. 
All right, Thomas Pollock, the end of food and the war in the country, I'm guessing, uh, uh, Amazon.com? Yep, you can get them both on the same. Amazon.ca for Canada. All right, these are two essential books that should be in everybody's uh, home library. All right, again, thanks, Thomas. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, uh, let's really shift gears here. Rosemary Ellen Guiley, our paranormal investigator, standing by to talk about a possessed article of clothing, and we can open up the phone lines. If you have a possession that you think might be haunted or possessed, would love to hear from you. Uh, but first, we'll get to the story of the possessed Masonic apron on the other side. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show here on AM740. Stay with us. Keeping an eye on the New World Order, this is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM740. To speak with Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll free 1-866-740-740. Four seven Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrin from Zuma Radio, AM 740. At 12.30, the bottom of the hour, we'll uh, open up the lines and uh, just about anything you want to talk about if it relates to conspiracies or political subterfuge, the paranormal, supernatural, UFOs, we are willing and able to discuss uh, but one of the things that you, you, might, you might want to uh, consider talking about um, has to do with what my next guest is talking about uh, here tonight, and that is possessed possessions. If you have, there's a new a TV show, a uh, new reality show, I think it's called The Haunted Collector, and uh, this is all about uh, um, antiques and things that people bring into their homes only to find uh, that once that antique doll is inside the house, some strange things start happening. Um, so we're going to discuss whether it's possible for an object to be haunted. Is it possible that a spirit could glom onto, um, I don't know, uh, an old roll-top desk or a grandfather's clock or, or even a piece of jewelry? Well, apparently, something like that has happened um, in, in, here in Toronto, and it involves a Masonic apron. And uh, here to tell us more, I mean, who else to tell this story than uh, one of the preeminent paranormal investigators, Rosemary Ellen Guiley, is a leading expert on the paranormal and supernatural. She conducts original field investigations of hauntings and mysterious sites. She's written more than 41 books, including nine encyclopedias, 
and hundreds of articles in print on a wide range of paranormal, spiritual, and mystical topics, and, pos- and possesses an exceptional knowledge of the field. And uh, always a pleasure to welcome back, as we do, the second Sunday of every month, Rosemary Ellen Guiley. Hey, Rosemary, how are you? I'm doing great, Richard. I'm in Florida right now. I'm doing some research and media and uh, working on some gin cases down here and uh, having a great time. The, um, the case that we're going to be talking about tonight actually has some origins with your show because the person who contacted me the first time she ever became aware of my work was through your show some years ago. Ah, okay. And um, this, this is uh, uh, someone here in Toronto that has in, in their possession a Masonic apron. First of all, for those who are not familiar with the Masonic fraternity, uh, what is a Masonic apron? What does it look like? It's a triangular cloth, and it has a Masonic uh, symbol on it. And it's a, an, a piece of ceremonial attire. Uh, the Masons wear uh, their aprons when they do their uh, lodge rituals. And uh, it's considered to be one of the most important items that a Mason has, along with, um, with their Masonic ring. It's traditional for a Mason to be buried in his apron. And uh, sometimes the ring is passed on to other family members who are either in the Masons or interested in joining the Masons. Um, and you had mentioned, uh, you know, possessed possessions, and it is possible for entities to attach to objects. Uh, they don't even have to be old, um, but uh, something that uh, enables them to sort of hang on, and an object that's associated with rituals and with anything of a magical nature, and many lodges do uh, perform varying kinds of magical rituals, uh, this might provide an opening for an entity to attach. And that seemed to be the case here. Um, this is one of the most interesting cases I've had in quite a while. So this individual uh, that, that contacted you here in Toronto that has this Masonic apron, first of all, how did they come in possession of it? It belonged to the grandfather. And uh, I'm going to call the, uh, the wife Anne uh, for the sake of um, protecting the family privacy, and they, they live in the general Toronto area. But uh, about three years ago, she received the Masonic apron of her grandfather after he died. And uh, he should have actually been buried with the apron, but for various reasons he wasn't, and it was passed on down to her as a family keepsake. So they brought it into the house and uh, put it into a closet, and weird things began to happen. Not a whole lot right off the bat. But just every now and then, very strange things that could not be explained. And as is typical in cases like this, the activity got a little more unsettling and frightening as time went on. Uh, And she contacted me earlier this summer because the activity had gotten to be rather alarming. She had heard me uh, talk about the gin and began to wonder if there might be something like that associated with their home and possibly something in it, and we zeroed in on the apron. What was going on in the house? Uh, Well, apparitions, um, mysterious lights floating in the sky, um, voices, disembodied voices. Uh, 
One of the first things that happened, and I really did think that this was a gin case from the type of uh, phenomena going on, and the gin are uh, entities that can act a lot like demons. They're not demons. They're a separate supernatural race of entity, and I do think that they are responsible for a lot of our paranormal activity, but um, they are associated with the kind of magic that if a lot of magic was going on in this particular um, Masonic Lodge, it would be based on um, the Western mystery tradition, which comes out of the lore of King Solomon. And King Solomon um, commanded the jinn. Uh, one of the first things was this odd phenomenon of the closet didn't seem to be quite physical. Uh, and uh, reached into the closet to, to retrieve some hangers, and it seemed like she was going way further in than she should, and the door seemed to sink way further into the wall. Now, that's the sort of thing that you can say, well, okay, that's probably your imagination, and that's what her husband suggested, but it was kind of a weird feeling that she couldn't shake. Sounds like something right out of the Chronicles of Narnia with (laughs) with the uh, the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. And the Twilight Zone, too. Mm -hmm. And, of course, we have a lot of occult lore that uh, talks about the entity or the monster in the closet. Shadow people come out of the closet. Voices come out of the closet. Um, And shortly after that, then, she saw an apparitional figure of a woman who appeared to be dressed in a Middle Eastern burqa. And that's the, uh, the clothing that completely covers the woman head to foot. They leave a little screen uh, for the eyes. And this figure was crouched in the corner. Uh, now, another thing that Anne noticed was that um, in, instead of being overly alarmed or, or greatly alarmed at this, she, she had the weird mental feeling of like, well, okay, I can forget about this. So there seemed to be something operating on a mental influence level, which is also very characteristic of intelligent jinn hauntings. So there would be things like this that would happen, and then things would be quiet for a while. The daughter began um, being frightened of monsters and bad things in her bedroom, asked her mother to please seal it off from the monsters, and, and so Anne put a circle of white light around her room and uh, they would go through a little ritual of ringing a bell three times to get rid of the fairies and whatever bad things might be there. And that's a very traditional remedy against spirits to ring bells. The bell ringing will clear the air. Um, and then her daughter began seeing uh, figures moving around in her te- in the television set in her room. Oh, my. Um, there were um, voices emanating from her playroom. Um, the husband heard a woman's voice calling the daughter's name. So they began to get alarmed, and they shut off the playroom. Now, the apron was being stored in the closet in, in this room, and uh, they took her toys out and uh, just shut the room down because it was beginning to get a little creepy. And then her daughter said that she saw a male figure, uh, and she described it as um, covered in a blue tablecloth and sounded, you know, sort of like the the garment that had uh, been on this female figure. But she knew it was a man because his girlfriend was in the closet. So it seemed like suddenly there were two of them. And I think that there there were two entities associated with this case, and they took different forms. 
And, and how was, were you and the owner of the apron able to piece this together and, and, and um, figure out that it was the Masonic apron, or was it qu- simply a question of timing? Um, some of it had to do with the timing, because when, when people have a sudden onset of activity like this, there is a point of origin. It doesn't start for just no reason. So one of my first questions is, did anything happen? Was there a major trauma in the household? Did you move? Uh, did you bring anything unusual into the house? Uh, and um, she pinpointed it right away to, well, all this stuff started when we inherited granddad's Masonic apron. So that, to me, was um, um, a major thing right there because of the association with ritual. Um, this was someone who had died. There possibly could have been entities that would have, might have been attracted to Masonic activities, maybe even attracted to the grandfather himself, and uh, had somehow been able to attach to the apron when he died. They're not going to go into the, the grave uh, along with the person, but they'll ride along on a possession and look for a new home, and I think that's what happened here. So there was similar activity like that where there were figures in the hallway and some of them couldn't seem to come into the little girl's room because uh, Anne, the mother, had sealed the room off. But um, some of them were able to get past that boundary. So I advise that they take the apron out of the house. And that's one of the things that I recommend first. You know, if you suspect that something might be possessing an object, remove it from the premises and then see what happens. So when she went to the closet to get the apron, it was gone. It had mysteriously vanished. Oh, my. And uh, that's definitely ratcheting up the, uh, the creep factor. Now, it's not unusual, Richard, in, in cases like this where you've got an active haunting that uh, they will take objects and move them around. Things will disappear and they'll reappear in strange places. But here, here was something that was being identified as a possible source of this activity, and lo and behold, it's missing now, so we can't do anything with it. Uh, And it was missing for uh, a good nine or ten days, just disappeared. And then meanwhile, more things were starting to happen. And that's also very typical, that uh, when you realize what's going on and you start to focus on a solution to it, the activity will often increase. Okay, and, Rosemary, uh, just hold on there. We'll uh, we'll take a time out. We'll come back and uh, continue to ratchet up the creep factor. <laughs> I okay. like to use that expression if you don't mind. <laughs> if you haven't copyrighted that, uh, that's a wonderful expression. <laughs> sure. That's what we do here on the Conspiracy Show. We every night we ratchet up the uh, the creep factor. But you know the the, the idea of the um, that missing object. I want I want uh, wives out there. Uh, to take note of that, because, you know, the, the husband goes to the closet and says, uh, Honey, where's that striped shirt with the cufflinks that I like? And she says, It's right, it's there in the closet. And he says, No, it's not. And she says, Yes, it is. And he says, No, it's not. And, of course, she goes up there and, without looking, pulls it out of the closet. You see, maybe there's a gin behind that. So uh, all I'm saying is go easy on us guys, ladies, because that's a possibility. Rosemary Ellen Guiley is here, and we'll continue to discuss the case of the possessed Masonic apron right here on The Conspiracy Show. Get on board. Questions and comments. Perhaps you have a story of your own. 416-360-0740. Toll free from just about anywhere. 866-740-4740.
If you're sure your phone isn't tapped, call now, 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario at 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Corporations, governments, and sometimes entire civilizations, what goes up must come down. And it lands on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Rosemary Ellen Guiley uh, is with us. And of course, her book, that The, uh, the Vengeful Jinn, uh, the topic of which are these, these uh, jinn that have been described... Um, as uh, genies in some cultures, um, they are mischievous, they are uh, potentially dangerous, uh, and they could be sort of the common denominator, the, the, the spiritual entity that is behind um, many of the, the paranormal uh, phenomena that we uh, sort of grapple and wrestle with uh, here on this program, and that uh, Rosemary Ellen Guiley has really dedicated her life to studying. Uh, so is it a jinn that is um, inhabiting this Masonic apron? It sounds like, uh, Rosemary, that this apron uh, activated some sort of a, a portal in that closet. I mean, it, can it work that way? I don't know if we lost Rosemary. Is Rosemary still with us? Am I still on the air? I'm not really sure. Well, um, if Griffin can hear me back in studio, if you want to try and get uh, Rosemary back on the line. You're still on air. I am still on the air. That's, that's the, the first part. That's the first in, in essential ingredient. Now we'll try and get Rosemary Ellen Guiley uh, back on the program. In the meantime, uh, as we continue to discuss the, uh, the case of the possessed apron, I just want to uh, once again alert you to the Conspiracy Television Program, which airs on Vision TV. It's every night, uh, every weeknight, I should say. I know last year, season one, it aired on a Friday night. Um, so be, uh, be forewarned, forearmed. It's on every weeknight. In fact, uh, this coming Monday, Monday, October the 10th, at 11 p.m. on Vision, our second in what we hope will be a series of past life regressions. Um, we're going to witness a, a Toronto man works for the parking authority, and uh, he's, uh, he'll undergo a past life regression before the cameras, during which he appears to recall the previous life as a doctor. And we also uh, employed a genealogist to engage, uh, or engaged a genealogist to try and verify that the details of this regression were actual. Uh, that this was an actual person, in other words. So find out what happened uh, 11 p.m. on Monday. In the second half of the show, uh, 11.30, a season one episode on the New World Order. We'll speak to uh, Jim Mars and John Rappaport and uh, Sidney White, um, and we'll discuss whether or not a powerful cabal of wealthy elites is conspiring to impose this New Hi, World Richard. Order. All right, I think we've got Rosemary Ellen Guiley back. Hey, Rosemary. They're playing with the phone lines again. Uh, indeed, that happens quite a bit. I know you've, you've, whenever you discuss uh, the gin, 
um, strange things happen. So take us back to the um, this missing apron, this missing Masonic apron. Well, the uh, the wife Anne demanded it to be returned, and it was returned. In fact, uh, one day, about nine or ten days after it disappeared, she went to the closet to fetch something else, and the apron literally fell into her hands. Mm. It had not been in the closet. In fact, she had searched all over the house for it, so there it was back again. But meanwhile, some more disturbing things were happening to the little girl. She was beginning to have uh, nightmarish dreams, um, a woman with um, an outfit on the same color as the Masonic apron, the same colors, appeared in her bedroom with saw-like teeth, lower teeth, and uh, acted like she wanted to, um, she conveyed the feeling that she wanted to grab her head and eat her brain. Oh, my And that there was another figure lurking in the hallway that, that couldn't seem to come in. Uh, and uh, in the dream, in the, one of these dreams the little girl had, she called for her mom uh, to come and help her. And uh, so in the dream, Anne comes into the bedroom and um, uh, to help her, and this uh, female figure then turns into this, as Anne called it, a tornado of smoke and disappeared into a bag. And that also is characteristic of the gin, too disappear uh, as smoke or mist. In lore, they are said to be created of smokeless fire, and they shapeshift very easily. So this was cause for concern. Uh, And it is possible. uh, Anne contacted me. She said, uh, you know, do can entities invade dreams? And, you know, uh, can they feed off our energy? And yes, they can. Uh, There is such a thing as dream invasion, and that's often how we are approached and even attacked by entities. It's through our dreams. Uh, And uh, so uh, it became very important then to do something about this apron. Now, Anne did tell me, she said, you know, every time we've tried to do something with it, it seemed like, well, well, we'll just put it off, or it's not that important. And again, here's this sort of mental influence uh, that, uh, you know, to leave it alone, to just let it be. Um, but with the, the escalation of uh, menacing figures in the house uh, and, um, uh, you know, attacking the little girl like that, it became very important. So they did uh, take the apron out, um, and she actually was able to contain it in a very good way. I suggested that maybe the entities might have to be ritually bound to it, Uh, in order to get them out of the house. Um, And so she and her husband took the apron, they put it into a metal container with salt, with frankincense, myrrh, and cypress. Uh, The cypress would be something associated with the dead. The frankincense and myrrh are um, uh, incenses and and, uh, essential, um, you know, perfumes and oils used in a lot of rituals. Salt is very binding anytime you want to cleanse an object. Uh, you immerse it in salt, and they put it in this container and then uh, took it out of the house, and things have been quiet since then. Uh, so um, it appears that what whatever came into the house did ride in on the apron. This is very common um, to have possessed possessions, far more than people might realize. I... Um... 
uh, working as a producer on the other side of the microphone at another radio station years ago, uh, received a fax back in those days. We actually received faxes, <laughs> and uh, it was from a, a, a couple uh, in the Toronto area, and they had a bench. And it had, um, I believe it was the Greek god Bacchus, uh, sort of carved into the back of the bench. But it, it looked very sinister. And the moment they brought this bench into their house, they were beset by misfortune, uh, lost jobs, illnesses, um, a daughter that um, was pushed down the stairs. And um, they... Um, they did a little research, and the, uh, I believe they actually even had a psychic um, take a look at the bench who somehow was able to divine that the, the bench had been constructed out of uh, wood from an old coffin. Oh so uh, we actually had the bench brought into the radio studio and um, had it sort of exercised live on the air. But um, you're right, these stories are out there. Uh, and perhaps in the uh, in the second half of the, um, the this hour, we'll open up the lines and we'll get some of those calls. But um, binding it, you say, is, is the key. Um, putting it in a uh, some sort of a metal container. What if it? What if the object is too large? Um, what if it's uh, you know a huge wardrobe or an armoire or something like that? How do you how do you do that? Usually, when people just get rid of the object, uh, they throw it out or... Ah, those vengeful gin are at it again. We've lost, uh, we've lost Rosemary. Um, Part the object oh, there. there. They're playing with the phone line again, uh, Rosemary. Okay. I say they're playing with the phone lines oh. again. Are you there? Yes, I am. Okay. So... A large object like an armoire. How does one? Oh, yes. I, I mean, I've had cases where people have um, had possessed furniture, and uh, they wind up taking it to the dump or something like that. And uh, so the uh, the entity goes with usually goes with it, and may even depart the object and, and find a new home with something like this where it's an object that's probably been associated with ceremonial ritual. And as I mentioned earlier, lodges vary considerably in their uh, ritual activity, and some of them are much deeper into ceremonial magic than others. And this by no means is, this is not a, a negative thing. Ceremonial magic is, uh, it's a form of, um, you know, spiritual enlightenment pursuit. And every lodge, of course, has its just plain ceremonial rituals. But the Western magical tradition, as I mentioned, goes back to the days of King Solomon, and that's where the jinn association is. Solomonic magic was originally developed for uh, summoning, um, the, summoning and exercising the jinn. And in fact, Anne's husband, when she started thinking about the jinn, she heard me uh, talk about the jinn, um, her husband said, well, why would we have the jinn? You know, they're Middle Eastern, and here we are in Canada. Well, the jinn are everywhere. Um, they're known primarily in Middle Eastern lore, but they're everywhere just like fairies are everywhere, and most of what we know about fairies comes out of Celtic lore. So um, the um, information about them gets developed in certain parts of the country, but the entities can really act out anywhere. But the, the object having magical associations... 
sometimes it is better to literally force the entity to stay to the object and then secure the object. Uh, and this is one of the things that my friend John Zappas does. And you, you mentioned his show, The Haunted Collector. John yes. is a demonologist. We're um, neighbors in Connecticut. We do a lot of work together. And uh, John uh, is often called out into cases where objects have entities uh, attached to them. And he sometimes binds them to the object and then neutralizes it uh, and um, one of the ways of doing that would, of course, be putting it in a container with, um, with salt, for example. And this prevents the entity from getting out and interfering with other people. Well, Rosemary, all I can say is uh, thank goodness uh, that this lady we're calling Anne was able to hear you on the program, get in touch with you, and you were able to, um, to get her the, uh, the right, you know, the advice and the instructions to, to get this this entity out of her house and out of her life. Things have been quiet since the end of August. Now, they still possess the apron. It's in a, a storage facility. And so who knows? Uh, no one will know if, if the entities are still, and I think there's two of them, uh, are still attached to the apron. We would have to get the apron out and uh, see if it would uh, reintroduce activity, but nobody wants to take the chance. So right now it's contained, it's off-premises, and that seems to be the solution because they've had no further paranormal problem. Well, let's hope that Anne remembers to pay her rent on that storage unit. Otherwise, it's going to end up on an episode <laughs> of Storage Wars. And uh, I don't know if you like that. I'm a huge fan of the show, but uh, I'm thinking, you know, someone like Barry is going to bid on that locker, and he's going to have to contend with the uh, Masonic apron because he's a bit of a collector. We'll have another, uh, we'll have another case of Wishmaster on our hands. Indeed. Rosemary, uh, wow, this is uh, a fascinating story, and I thank you for bringing it to our attention. What are you working on next? I have uh, a gin case in Florida that I'm going to be heading on to uh, tomorrow. First, I'm making a stop at Coral Castle, and oh, yes. that is a very mysterious place where uh, a man built this um, coral monument. It's, it's full of huge stones, carved coral stones uh, in planetary and mysterious symbols. He built it as a... Um, an edifice to the woman he loved who um, did not return the love, unrequited love. And oh, yes. he did it all apparently through magic and levitation. So uh, that's a famous place in uh, southern Florida, and I'm visiting that first. And then I'm getting together with a paranormal researcher friend of mine on um, a very active gin case that I've been tracking for a little over a year now. Again, multiple manifestations, and that's often the case with the jinn. They like to shapeshift and do different things and uh, keep people rather unbalanced. All right. Well, Rosemary, uh, good luck. Be safe. Be careful. And um, we'll talk to you uh, next month. Thank you, Richard. Bye-bye. Rosemary Ellen Guiley. The website, incidentally, is visionaryliving.com. If you've got a, uh, a possessed possession and need to get a, a hold of Rosemary, uh, she's, got, um, she's got the goods. She'll, she'll, um, she'll walk you through that um, by email. All right. Uh, let's 
take a time out. We'll come back. We'll open up the phone lines if you've got uh, a possessed possession you'd like to talk about. I know Dylan is still on hold. He wants to um, to, um, to talk a little bit about uh, uh, Freemasonry and has a related story. We'll get to Dylan when we come back, and hopefully your call as well. Open lines now until the top of the hour. The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Passcodes, personal identification numbers, social insurance numbers. If they make you wonder how private they are, here's two more numbers. 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario, 1-866-740-4740. Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Let's just listen to a little bit of this piece, shall we? I've 
been in, uh, I've had uh, experiences with uh, uh, other entities since I was a, a child, uh, and it's uh, a sensitivity that comes through from uh, uh, from from the family. It's sort of uh, everybody in the family has been sensitivity to this, but I have as a result of Masonic ritual. Being a Mason myself, while I can't tell you exactly what goes on in the, uh, in the uh, Masonic Hall during a Masonic ritual, what I can tell you is there is no invocation of uh, uh, jinn or any other uh, entities. Uh, essentially, uh, uh, what I can tell you is that Masonic ritual uh, teaches good men to be better and to uh, uh, serve others in their community. Yeah, I, I don't think that she was suggesting that they, these, the spirit was invoked during Masonic um, a ceremony. Uh, she was sort of providing a little bit of the back history uh, and, and going back to King Solomon, who she said was claimed to be a master over uh, the jinn, and so perhaps that was the connection. Um, in, in, well, in any event, Danielle, you're unfortunate. Just the way it was stated uh, uh, sort of could have given uh, the impression of that. And, you know, I hear lots of things on the radio. I see lots of things on TV where, where people get misimpressions about, uh, uh, about uh, the Masonic fraternity. Uh, and so I, I figured that, you know, let me make at least a small... Uh, introduce a little bit of reality here. Um, you know, now I've, you know, had haunted experiences with places and and things myself. So certainly, entities can attach. As a matter of fact, uh, I live in a haunted house, uh, which, as near as I've been able to figure, is haunted because there are. Oh, Daniel, we have lost you. I apologize. Um, oh, I want to work in this next gentleman because he has a, uh, an interesting event coming up. Uh, and Alan uh, Jaggard uh, is with us, good friends of um, um, our dear friend here on The Conspiracy Show, Victor Vigiani. He's got a, a show coming up on Saturday. Alan Jaggard, thanks for getting a hold of us. Richard, nice Hi, to be Alan. with you this evening. Good to have you aboard. Yes. Well, I appreciate you having me on here this evening to talk about this event that we're going to have next Saturday. Um, it's entitled UFOs and the Extraterrestrial Message, and we're very excited about this because uh, we've got for the first time here in Canada an international best-selling author, Richard Lawrence, who happens to be the Executive Secretary of the European Headquarters of the Aetherius Society, He's been on a book tour uh, stretching from Los Angeles, uh, just finished uh, last week in Michigan, and he's coming up to Toronto next Friday night. And we have this event going on at the Living Arts Centre, which is at 4141 Living Arts Drive in Mississauga, and it's on Saturday afternoon at 2 o'clock. And um, we think it's going to be a very unique um, presentation dealing with the subject of UFOs and extraterrestrials. And it's really because of the message that uh, we know that he's going to be presenting there. 
which is based on uh, the founder of the Aetherius Society, which was Dr. George King, who is uh, actually passed away back in 1997. But um, uh, Richard Lawrence is the was a close friend of Dr. George King and worked with him for decades and has a tremendous amount of experience. And uh, we're just really excited to see this uh, talk that he's going to give this, uh, this Saturday. What, what is the, the Aetherius Society all about? What is the message that Richard Lawrence will be delivering? Um, well, the Aetherius Society was started back in 1954 um, when this very accomplished yoga master by the name of George King uh, received a message that he claimed uh, came from extraterrestrial sources and uh, that he was going to be utilized for his abilities uh, to go into deep states of somatic trance <clears throat> and uh, be used as a channel for information. And over the 50 years that it's uh, been going on here, there was over 600 transmissions of information uh, that he brought. And these uh, cosmic beings, as they refer to them, um, had a great message that they felt was necessary for mankind to hear in this day and age in preparation for great changes that not are going to come about, but actually have been coming about and are continuing to this day. And uh, I think the thing that's the most unique thing about this in all the years and decades that I've investigated uh, this information is that the Aetherius Society is one of the few uh, organizations that has a founder that is a claimed contactee who actually has a lot of information that I consider to be almost irrefutably provable. Um, and that's because of uh, some of these transmissions that he brought through dealt with very serious subjects of, you know, worldly nature. Uh, I can give you an example of, like, yes, some please. of the worst nuclear catastrophes that ever occurred on this planet uh, that were covered up by various world governments. Um, this information that came through him, uh, in some cases, took, you know, decades before it was proven to be absolutely correct which only can leave the investigator to say, well, how did he know this, or how did he have this, unless it was really a, a true contact. And so this is what um, Richard Lawrence is going to be talking about in this um, event, is not so much the nuts and bolts of UFOs, but more about their message, because it's a definite message, and it's meant for every man, woman, and child on this planet. And if uh, anyone wants to hear this and hear what this message is, um, the thing that I can say from my own personal experience is, is that if you need something to back it up with proof, uh, he'll have plenty of that to present there. And, um, and so that's what the, uh, the event is really going to be about, is their message. Now, he's Richard Lawrence, uh, also, <clears throat> I understand, uh, he's a student of, 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 of um, Master of Yoga, Dr. King. Is, is he also now, has he picked up the mantle insofar that he is now also receiving messages? No, absolutely uh, not, and he'll be the first one to tell you that. Uh, although uh, he also is probably very humble in the sense that uh, he, he's a very good psychic, and he's a great spiritual teacher in himself. He, he holds many different uh, classes on a regular basis over in England, and, um, sometime, and he's doing them here, actually, in uh, North America here during this trip. But uh, no, the cosmic messages that came through George King... In fact, there actually even is a transmission that came, I forget when it was, it was in the 70s, I think it was, or the, the very early 70s, 
And one of the transmissions actually stated that when, uh, and it's funny how the way they word it too, is that they say the man you refer to as George King, when he has to vacate his physical body, in other words, go through the initiation of of death, um, he will not be replaced. I think they actually say the voice would not be replaced. And uh, true to form, that's what has occurred. Like when he passed away in 1997, there was uh, no more direct contact, but we were told that actually decades before. Ah, So really what we have here, though, is we have about, uh, well, at least 45 years of the time that he spent documenting this information because it's all professionally recorded uh, on uh, magnetic tape as it started back in the 50s and the 60s, and now it's all been transferred to, uh, you know, digital format, and it's actually stored in two different vaults around the world for posterity's sake and to just protect it, and much of it has been released. Not all of it, but much of it has been released, and it can be investigated by anyone. And like I said, the investigation of it is really what is the intriguing part. Anyone that investigates with an open mind and hears what this message is, uh, it's very inspiring, it's very hopeful, uh, but it's also got a sort of dire tone to it that there are great changes that are going to occur on this earth. And I think uh, you only have to watch the news every night to see some of the uh, you know, tremendous upheavals that are going on in the world, whether it's political or environmental or the wars that are going on and stuff. And you can just see that there's something happening. Well, when you go back over the information over the years, you can see that this was all predicted. It was all told to us that it was going to happen, just the way we can see it watching it on the news today. And, um, and like I said, it just requires people to investigate. But I'll go back to that once again. Anyone that's skeptical about it, this is what I always recommend to them. Ask for proof. Anyone that makes a claim of contact with some extraterrestrial, I've yet to find anybody that can back it up with this type of evidence that he has um, you know, in his repertoire of information. Sounds like a, um, a great uh, way to spend an afternoon in any event. Uh, 2 o'clock at the Living Arts Centre in Mississauga, 2 p.m., and um, how do people get the tickets? Um, well, if you email us at um, Toronto, the whole word Toronto, at Aetherius.org, that's A-E-T-H-E-R-I-U-S, Aetherius.org, um, you can get the tickets uh, directly from us, uh, or just uh, you RSVP us. Let us know that you're coming. There'll be tickets at the door. Uh, and then anyone that would really like to talk to us directly and make reservations, uh, our phone number is 905-624-2457. And, uh, and I'd like to uh, I'll extend an offer to you, Richard, there too, since I know you live out in Markham there. If you were interested in coming, uh, you could be my guest, and you're welcome to come. Bring your wife or anyone that you would like. If you would like to uh, meet Richard Lawrence, I can arrange that for you. Uh, but um, uh, we're just really excited about that. We're going to hear him, uh, and particularly myself. Uh, uh, I find him to be one of the most inspiring speakers that I've ever seen, and this will be my first time seeing him uh, here in Canada uh, speaking live, and I'm just uh, really excited about it because I know it's going to be a tremendous event. Alan, give us the phone number again. Uh, the number is 905 624 
and the email address once more. Uh, Toronto at Asterius, A-E-T-H-E-R-I-U-S dot org. Alan, thank you. Uh, sounds like a great evening. If I can, uh, if I can move things around on my schedule, I would. I'd like to be there, but I shall uh, let you know. Okay. Well, I appreciate you, uh, you having us on here at short notice like this, but um, it's just a pleasure. And by the way, I love your shows, TV and radio. So I appreciate it. Okay. Thanks, Alan. Good to meet Thank you. Thank you very much, then, Richard. Good night. All right. Uh, let's take a quick time out. If time permits, we'll grab another call. Uh, I've got, uh, I think, Scott hanging on from uh, Massachusetts who wants to talk about the, uh, the Wall Street protests. And uh, then uh, we can um, sing our way out with uh, a song from Who Stole the Cookies back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. You want the truth? You can handle the truth. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. AM 740. To get to the truth, call Richard now at 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM 740. Take a look around. What do you really see? This is where you can tell all about it. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. All right. Uh, I'm not sure if we still have Scott from Massachusetts on hold. If so, Scott, you are on the air. Hello, uh, good uh, morning, Mr. Ferret. How are you? I'm well, thank you, sir. Uh, I'd like to discuss the Wall Street protesters. I absolutely support them. I was swindled myself out of $190,000 when Lehman Brothers uh, went bankrupt because of a disgraced ex-CEO, Richard Fold. But uh, there's other villains on Wall Street that should be arrested, and they need to be incarcerated the rest of their life, like Lloyd Blank, Fina Goldman Sachs, Alan Schwartz of Bear Stearns, Jamie Dimon of J.P. Morgan Chase, Bernie Madoff, we all know, swindled $65 billion in a Ponzi scheme, and George Soros manipulates uh, currencies, world currencies on Wall Street. Wall Street is controlled by uh, evil and greedy international Jewish bankers on Wall Street. Uh, uh, no, 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 I, I can't. Uh, I can't. The Jews control right Wall Street. Uh, let's let's uh, we can we can talk about Wall Street, but let's not bring any ethnicity into that. I won't permit that. Well, let's put it this way. Uh, I'd like to talk about how international uh, Jewish bankers. Uh, let's no. I don't want to talk about international Jewish bankers. Uh, we'll end the call there, uh, Griff. If uh, someone wants to call in and talk about international bankers, that's fine. But we will not. No, no, no. no. I, 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 I can't allow you to continue because you've, that's that's two strikes. And no, I want, I want, to, I want to talk about international bankers. But you've already displayed your true colors, sir. So I'm not going to continue with this conversation. Uh, why don't we? Take uh, the few minutes that remain, and uh, again, we'll introduce Who Stole the Cookies, a song that they've written just for this show. It's called Nothing Concealed. Don't think, don't realize you're on the brink 
This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.